Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a small business owner, investor, work and process improv artist, definitely neurotic and always looking for something new and interesting to entertain me. I'm a TV host and your host for what we call the Second Scene Podcast. It's a Dweebs Global production where you can go for free help, resume help, uh, help, uh, mental health help, anything you need. We have mentors around the world, over 500 of them. So please go to dweebsglobal.org. It's free. I swear it's free. So I'm here today with Clay Risen, Senior Political Editor for the New York Times. He is also a freelancer for the who's who of respected news outlets. For his second scene, he has become an expert in all things whiskey, having written several books in the subject of whiskey. So it's yeah. too early in the day for me to have my whiskey. Otherwise, otherwise I'd be, I've been enjoying a glass right now. Fair enough. Where are you originally from? Uh, I'm originally from Nashville. So grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, only moved away for college. Uh, never moved back, but uh, but I miss it a lot. You, so you stayed once you once you left for college. You were, yeah. I mean, I I moved around a lot after college, but uh, but never never quite felt the felt the pull to move back. Uh, even as much as I love Nashville, um, you know, I lived in Chicago for a while. I lived in different parts of Europe. I lived in uh, New York, Washington, DC. I just liked living in a really, really big city. So Nashville, which is, you know, Nashville now is a really big city. But when I was growing up, it was pretty, uh, pretty small and insular, a uh, good place to grow up. Uh, I never really thought it would be a good place to, to uh, maybe uh, live out my young adulthood. So uh, did you keep some of your country roots? Uh I mean, I write about whiskey, so that's <laughs> that, that's one thing. Um, but uh, no, I you know I never had much of an accent. Uh, you know, Nashville's far enough far enough north where uh, you get some people who have no accent at all, and some people who have a really thick accent. Uh, yeah, you can't hear it at all. I would I no. would never never have guessed. Sometimes sometimes when I'm back home, uh, when I'm in Nashville or I'm talking to someone with an accent, it'll it'll come back a little bit. But I do, uh, I do that with anyone that I'm talking to that has an accent. I seem to take it on. <laughs> I feel I feel bad. I feel like yeah. I think I'm like one of those people. people. Yeah. I do improv, and I can only do accents if my scene partner is doing an accent. Otherwise, I'm. <laughs> otherwise, I, I can't do it at all. If they change oh, it, wow. mine will change naturally right along with them. <laughs> what's what's drawn you to the big cities? Uh, you know, I don't, that's a good question. Um, I mean. I used to think that it was, uh, so when I was a little kid, we spent about two years, uh, we moved, uh, my dad had business uh, in Tokyo and we moved to Tokyo and, you know, it was just, uh, was and is just a mind-blowingly huge city. And I had a great time as a kid, uh, just what my, you know, I was at the right age, first and second grade, just kind of, yeah, really threw me for a loop. And coming back and living in Nashville, which again, is a great place, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same experience. And so I think I always just had that bug to try to get back. Okay. All right. Great. Where are you coming out of right now? I'm in Brooklyn. So at home in bed -Stuy. Oh, nice. Nice. I miss New York. I lived in the city for 11 years. Oh, wow. Where were you? I assume you're not in, that looks like Hong Kong behind you. No, no. I'm well, not, the not literally behind <laughs> your screen is <laughs> as I whack it yes <laughs> uh I'm just outside of Washington DC oh okay oh nice I lived in DC for about 10 years um 10 years total so nice we, we swapped with each other yeah 
No, I miss it. I, I like Washington a lot. Yeah, I miss New York. I never thought I'd leave there. I thought I was, I thought I was there for good. Yeah, I know the feeling. So you, you were in first grade, you moved to Tokyo. Is that what you yeah. said? What? That's, yeah, yeah. That's not the norm. What, what brought, what no. brought your family to Tokyo? At, at uh, my time? dad was, uh, yeah, my dad worked for uh, a high-tech company, high-tech manufacturing company. And they, uh, they had a lot of work in, in Asia. Uh, and, you know, this was early 80s. So, you know, phone calls, there was no telecommunications. So he had to travel a lot. Uh, flights were expensive. Uh, so it got to a point where he was gone, you know, altogether a couple months out of the year. And it just didn't make sense. So his company said, you know, would you rather just be based in Tokyo and you could fly to Hong Kong or fly to wherever you have to go as a day trip or as an overnight trip instead of as a two week trip? And uh, they said, we, you know, we'll move you to Tokyo. So that's what happened. And he was, he was there for a couple of years and wrapped up what he needed to do. And we came back. What a, so, what a crazy opportunity. It really was. It, it, it really was. I mean, to go from, you know, I, I, I go, a milieu where, let's just say diversity was not, um, uh, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't much of it. Uh, to Tokyo, which where I went to an international school and, um, you know, I met a lot of the people who went there were children of uh, business people or diplomats or they're from all over the world. I was looking through my yearbook uh, or, you know, uh, from a, one of those years just the other day and, and the number of kids, you know, from Nigeria and from Saudi Arabia and from India and a lot of Japanese kids. So I just met this whole slew of people from countries I didn't hadn't known existed. So, uh, you know, and got exposed to their cultures. And, and this is, again, this is in the 80s when in the United States, it's not like you'd ever encounter Nigerian food in Nashville uh, or, you know, let alone meet somebody from Singapore. So when did you first get into journalism? Oh, man. Um, I think I wanted, you know, I, as a kid, I kind of liked the, you know, I, I always loved writing and I always loved, uh, yeah, the idea of journalism. It, it wasn't always what I wanted to do, but I loved uh, loved the idea of it. And uh, in, in college, I worked for the college newspaper and uh, yeah, did some freelance writing. Uh, I didn't really set out a career path for me. I mean, one of the tough things in journalism is you really you sort of have to do a lot of work on your own to figure out, you know, where are you? What's going to be your entry point into this field? It's not like a lot of professions where, you know, you go to a certain graduate school and then from there you go to a job fair and you get a job or you, you know, where the paths are really clear. Journalism is, and I can't imagine what it's like today. It's probably a lot harder, but for me even, uh, so I wasn't doing that. And a lot of my friends were, uh, I wanted to go be, I wanted to go teach. I wanted to be, maybe get a PhD. And uh, so, you know, I spent some years kind of in the young, uh, young early 20s wilderness, um, having a good time, but, uh, you know, not really set on a career path. And uh, it, it really wasn't until I was, got serious about applying for a PhD program while also kind of working, I was living in New York at the time, and I was sort of working a bunch of what, what you might call kind of journalism adjacent jobs, like 
not really journalism, but kind of using the skills of journalism to, you know, write reports or, uh, you know, where I worked for a website for a while that did, uh, helped people get, you know, advise people on how to get a job with a high-end consulting firm or a high-end law firm, you know, is that, that sort of thing. And uh, I wasn't especially happy with that. Uh, so I was, you know, so I was constantly applying for new jobs or applying for permanent jobs. And uh, so I, I got a job offer from the New Republic, uh, sort of out of, almost out of the blue. I didn't expect that, um, given my background up you to just, that point. Just apply, you just applied and, and closed your eyes? Yeah, and- I just applied. I was just applying for everything. I probably applied for 50 or 60 jobs. Um, and I got that one and I had to make a decision, you know, do I stick it out for grad school or do I go ahead with this, which is, um, you know, very clearly the first step along, uh, uh, a pretty good first step into journalism. Uh, is that you decided you took it seriously at that point and that was just a, a, a choice, a choice you made and you put all your effort to go that direction. Uh, I never really, I never really looked back and yeah, I, I threw myself into, into this job, uh, as you know, into this profession, career profession. I'm not sure what journalism is exactly. Um, it's not quite, not quite a profession. It's, it's a bit of a craft. It's a bit of a guild, but you know. Gotcha. So right now you're, you're the, one of the head editors at the New York times. Uh, well, yes. So I was the, um, uh, I was, uh, an editor with the, uh, uh, opinion section for, for about 10 years. And I ended up the last several years, I was the uh, deputy deputy op-ed editor, and then then uh, I moved over. The way we do it is we have a politics section in the news side that starts up, you know, a little bit before the election, and and kind of it's um, you know a, a temporary desk. So it starts up and it gets a bunch of editors and a bunch of writers together, and they really focus on the election. And afterward, they kind of they split up. Uh, everyone kind of goes back to other jobs. And then a couple of years from now, we'll all get back together. So I'm actually currently moving into um, uh, yet another job. So I've been writing uh, obituaries for the last the last month or so. And uh, that may end up being what I do for, you know, for a while. Was this a, was this a choice? Yeah. Yeah. I love writing obituaries. It's, um, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, we do, we, we take a certain approach to obituaries and, you know, other people do too at Washington Post and the journal and some others where we really almost just use someone's death as an opportunity to report out their life and, and tell an interesting story. Uh, I'm, you know, I've, even though I've never gone and looked back on wishing I'd become a, an academic and tried to do anything about that, I, I do still love history. That, that was my, the field I was going to go into. And uh, this job is a lot, is a lot like that, where I sort of tell the history of a person's life and try to show the context in which that person lived, um, how they intersected with some aspect of usually American history. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you hear obituary. Just, and, and also, I, when you hear obituary, you just think somebody's writing about death all the time but it sounds like it's it's, it's a lot more intri- intricate than that it's a lot more yeah it's i mean really i aside from saying that someone has died mm-hmm. um i've never really that's 
that's one line in, you know, let's say it's uh, 10 words out of 1200 gotcha. in an article. When you worked as uh, in the op-ed department, how was it choosing what stories to cover and what stories not to cover? Ah, it was, it was, that was tough. Um, you know, we were, it was nice in that we weren't unlike the news side where you cover the news, you know, the news happens and you have to, you know, there's very little that you can sort of say, well, we're not going to cover this. Uh, we're going to cover this, but not this. Uh, you sort of, it's all the news that's fit to print. Uh, whereas an op-ed, you really get to pick and choose and say, well, this is an important issue uh, either because it's sort of, you know, it's obviously an important issue. Let's say it's um, Trump is impeached again. So that's something you need to talk about. Uh, but other things that are, you know, maybe they're important because no one's talking about them. Uh, and then maybe there are things that people are talking about, but there's not really a lot to say about in terms of an op-ed. You know, there might be a big news story without a lot of really interesting angles to it. So, you know, a lot of our conversations and our judgment was built around that, around what are the stories, what are the opinions that really aren't getting exposure that we need to bring up? And, and then what are the, uh, what are kind of the, the issues around which we want to kind of shape opinion? So everyone's talking about impeachment. How do we want to contribute to that? What are kind of the, what are the voices? What are the points of view that we think can really add to that conversation? Right. Would you have somebody with the opinion of the election being rigged even do an op-ed for the New York Times? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I can't speak for the people who are in the office now, my successors or my previous former colleagues. But I know if I run off, and if I run office, if I were in that job uh, office, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I mean, that's the other the other tough question about. about running an op-ed page is, um, you know, what are the acceptable limits of, uh, let's say, of discourse, of, of opinionating on the page? And that, had, that was always a, that's always a question, right? Uh, but, you know, it's, the last four years have made it uh, a very difficult conversation to have because things that up until four or five years ago were considered really fringe you know, are now considered, uh, uh, are now believed by tens of millions of people. So if you use the standards that you used to use, if we did, um, we'd have to talk about QAnon. I mean, we'd have to run a pro QAnon piece because the standards of before were, you know, what's roughly mainstream, uh, mainstream opinion, kind of, a, you know, the kind of boundaries of what we can say, you know, anything, conspiracy theories would always be outside of that. And now all of a sudden they're numerically in the mainstream. And yet we have to maybe readjust our standards. So I know that's a constant sort of frame of conversation in op-ed. Uh, it was when I was there and I'm sure they're still, uh, still kind of trying to work through that. Yeah, I can't imagine how difficult it's become because what's considered center, uh, if you're on the right, you think that's, uh, you think that's like insanely far left. Like it's, um, it, it's hard to keep that balance or even to give people a voice, like who to, how to choose who to give the voice to. Yeah, it's, uh... We don't wanna be 
uh, thought of as we don't think of ourselves as a liberal paper. You know, we're we're a uh, we report the news objectively, uh, and we don't want people to think of ourselves that uh, think of us that way. You know, we really want to be appealing to readers of the Wall Street Journal and National Review and we all that. And you know what we've what we found is you know we all of a sudden we obviously we still want people like that, but we don't necessarily want to run coverage that appeal. We don't, the things that we would have to do in order to win over viewers of uh, Newsmax or, you know, OAN, well, that's not what we are going to do. I mean, we, that's just not, they're just, they're peddling lies. So, but, but then that also contradicts our previous goal of trying to appeal to a broad swath of the numerical, let's say the, the median of American readers. So we've had to adjust what that means too, you know, where our standard of being, uh, you know, the truth above all else and being, you know, very much about kind of telling, telling things as is, is itself a partisan position. Um, and that's, that's a very unfortunate and difficult place to be. Right. Yeah. I've always feared that I'd open the New York Times one day and I would see a pro QAnon story or a pro election fraud story uh, in that <laughs> way. And I'd be like, oh, well, <laughs> now I guess we've jumped the shark or there's going to be another. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> we, we haven't gotten no, there. I mean, yeah. When, when we no, and when we say, look, uh, the president is lying because uh, there's no conspiracy, there's no mass voter fraud. That's just that's just true, but a huge number of people see that and think that it's a far left statement to make. So do you enjoy doing? Uh, do you enjoy the editing or the the writing? You know, I I'd like to say I enjoy both equally. I probably enjoy writing a little more, but also I just came off of about ten years of just editing, and you know, writing on the side and and doing a variety of uh, you know freelancing, but not having a, you know, my job was not, my job was editing. And, you know, so now I'm in a job where it's all writing. That's all I do. And the, the dew is not yet off the lily in that regard. You know, I may, six months from now, you should ask me the same question. I may tell you, God, I just want to get out of here. I just want to go back to editing. Uh, but right now it's a lot of fun and, and new and interesting. So uh, right now I'm really, um, really jazzing on the uh, writing gig. That's oh, lucky you got to change it up like that and, and in the same field. Yeah. Um, you know, I had honestly thought for a while that I was, you know, that I was basically going to be an editor for the rest of my life. And, and not that there's nothing wrong with that. I just figured that was sort of where my, you know, I had plowed that furrow pretty, uh, pretty deeply and figured that's, that's where I'll be. So to have this opportunity to now write full time, is yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's one of the great things about journalism is that there are a lot of opportunities to do different things within the field. So uh, I know people who they started off as print journalists, maybe they started off as reporters, they became editors. At a certain point, they became web editors. Now they do video production. Um, you know, and all of these are things that skill sets that they pick up on the job because the job is full of other people doing these things and uh, lots of opportunities to learn as you go along. And so, you know, that's, and that's a lot of fun. And then, you know, and then there are people who, you know, they've done all that and then they go back to writing or, or they move into 
script writing. They kind of leave the field to some extent and go do something else, but they have all these skills that make it very easy to transition into something yet again. Right, so, right. Yeah, lots of chances. A lot of avenues, a lot of avenues to go down. So you, yeah. you've chosen to write about whiskey. Yeah, yeah, along the way, <laughs> uh, along with uh, writing about all kinds of other things and editing. Uh, yeah, writing about whiskey. Right, you've written you've written a handful of books: uh, "The Crowded Hour," Theodore Roosevelt, "The Rough Riders." Yeah, so, so actually, yeah, so I so I write. Um, actually, kind of have two tracks to my book writing. I've got books that I write about uh, history. I write American history books. So I uh, wrote a book on the Civil Rights Act. Wrote a book about the Rough Riders. Uh, wrote a book about the week that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, and then, separate from that. I also write books um, and, and newspaper articles and other things about whiskey. So I've written three books about whiskey as well um, and, and actually have another one coming out this fall. So, you know. It sounds like a dare friend out there. You one night when you were out drinking. I dare you to write a bunch of books about whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, it wasn't, yeah, I wouldn't say that's totally off base. <laughs> Well, what, what got you into, what, what motivated you to write your first book about whiskey? What brought you there? I had been writing, uh, writing articles, uh, variety of, you know, for the New York Times, for uh, variety of websites, writing about whiskey uh, for a couple of years. And someone approached me, said, hey, I've got an idea for a book. Kind of a, this was back when whiskey was not uh, nearly as big a world as it is now. Um, but it was obviously moving in that direction. And so uh, this guy said, you know, we'd like to you know, put together a book and I'm, I'm a sort of graphic designer and can package a book. And, you know, would you want to do uh, a book that reviews all the American whiskey that's out there? So that, and that part was, was very much like a dare. Like, I dare you to taste every whiskey made in America and write about it. So I said, uh, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and and uh, so, yeah, so we made the first book, uh, which is called American Whiskey, Bourbon and Rye. And uh, that has actually done really, that sold over 100,000 copies. That book is uh, just continues to sell. We did a second edition that continues to sell. Uh, and then uh, that that guy who approached me, uh, George Scott, we continue to work together. And so we're now, we've did another book on uh, single malt scotch whiskey together. And, uh, and now we're working on a book about rye whiskey. Uh, and that'll be out next year, hopefully, knock on wood. I feel like it's like uh, the super, so yeah. size, super size me documentary where he had his doctors check on him throughout his, his writing. You get, you get liver checks every once in a while. And <laughs> I, I try to, you know, I try to keep healthy. Um, try not to do too much extracurricular tasting, let's say, you know, really focused on the project. I have a, a tasting panel that I work with. Uh, so, you know, people in the industry, other journalists, some people who uh, work on the sales side, retailing, you know, people just do, people just know whiskey. And so we do our tastings once a week and uh, virtually these days. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's, um, you're trying to make it uh, a social activity as much as possible. Yeah. I want to come to one of those parties. I mean, work events. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I don't know that much about whiskey myself. I, I enjoy a glass of whiskey, but there's so many different types of whiskey. What what makes them a whiskey? There's uh, there's bourbon, there's corn, there's malt, rye whiskey, rye malt, wheat. But what what makes them a whiskey? Yeah. So they just they've got to be made with grain, right? So it's got to be corn, wheat, barley, whatever. Uh, it's got to be um, fermented. So you, you basically make beer, right? And then you distill it. And uh, so that strips out all the color and a lot of the, the beeriness and you just get the alcohol. And, uh, and then it has to be aged. So it sits in a barrel and that's where it gets the color, a lot of the flavor. And uh, that's what makes it whiskey. Um, and then what makes the different types is, you know, it's partly about the recipe, you know, what grains go into it. It's where, where it's made, you know, so scotch has to be made in Scotland. Um, bourbon has to be made in the United States. Uh, but each country has its own traditions and its own styles. So it's not like bourbon and scotch, the only thing that, may, that separates them is their nationality. It's also all kinds of history and, and culture and, and traditions and technology that go into making one very different from the other. Are there, I guess there's a lot of similarities between the, the way they make them in the different countries, but enough of a difference. Can you, can you taste the difference? Would you, would you be able to yeah, name Yeah, I mean, yeah. oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you can taste the difference because of the grain that's used. You can taste the difference because of, uh, you know, a lot of the impact of all these different sort of techniques that go into making it end up producing a different product than you might get in, even though, you know, the, the basic process is the same wherever you are. But it's uh, part of what's wonderful about whiskey is, you know, the basic rules are the same and yet little tweaks and little differences add up to very big differences in, uh, in the results. Is it like wine where uh, each year tastes slightly different than the previous, previous year or is it more consistent? You know, some, it's, it's a little more consistent, um, partly, partly because that's how they want it. So there just isn't a tradition of annual releases. Uh, it's starting to change a little bit. You're seeing a little bit more of people making annual releases. Um, it's good marketing. You know, it's um, to be able to say year after year, well, you've got to buy this bottle this year because it's different from the bottle last year. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's pretty smart. So you see more, more distilleries are starting to try to say, well, we did it a little different this year versus last year. But, you know, it's not really, it, it's, it sort of has to be imposed because unlike, you know, with wine, it's really, uh, that comes out of uh, the harvest tradition, right? It's you harvest the grapes, you make the wine, you age it, and then you sell it. And that's all in one component. But with, with whiskey, you know, you're working with grain and yeah, you know, grain is harvested at certain times, but it's dry. It's, it's stable. You can go buy corn whenever you want. And so, you know, they're making whiskey all the time. It's not really a seasonal thing. So you really have to then introduce differences in order to get that marketing angle. Are you able to recommend different whiskeys depending on a person, a person's uh, personality or their taste or? Yeah, I mean, what do you like? What, what, what kind <laughs> I'm a of, red uh... wine drinker normally. Normally I'm a Pinot Noir. Okay. I mean, I find that people who like red wine, uh, particularly if, if you like Pinot, you know, uh, a ro really robust uh, 
bourbon is often a good thing to go with. So actually, you know, Knob Creek is a, that's a really good choice. Uh, something that's, you know, got a lot of body to it. You know, whiskey, a lot of the terms are the same. You talk about wine that has body, you talk about wine textures, uh, flavor profile, uh, you know, or uh, there's a lot of scotch that they, they'll age it in a barrel and then they'll put it into uh, a, another barrel that used to hold wine and they'll age it a little longer to get some wine qualities to it. Uh, so, you know, I would recommend one of those. Uh, there's some really, you know, McAllen is the really famous uh, single malt scotch that's finished in sherry barrels. But there are a lot of other ones like that. And, and that often has a nice, compl you know, complements, uh, let's say, a wine-friendly palate uh, really well. Okay. Um, I know you've written a book just about the bottles. What's, what's the history with, with, with whiskey bottles? Um, well, I mean, that was, that was very much about just the, uh, the, you know, what do you, what can you say about, what does the bottle tell you about the brand and about the whiskey? You know, in, in that case, it was, you know, truly historic whiskey that uh, really wasn't a, most of it I hadn't tasted because, you know, these are either bottles that are, there are only five of them in the world, or you could get one, but it's a half million dollars to buy a bottle. So it's really more about, you know, using the bottle to talk about the brand and about the history and about the, you know, to some extent about the whiskey, but not really about what I think about the whiskey or giving it a kind of review because I honestly have no idea <laughs> what some of that stuff tastes like, uh, except that for one reason or another, these are revered bottles. Okay. That's, that's wild. There's that many whiskeys around the world that you haven't managed to have a taste of at least most of them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they're, yeah, thousands and thousands. And, and uh, especially in, in Scotland, you just have such a rich and deep history of distilling that you have whiskey that, you know, even today, you know, might've been bottled 50 years ago, but even today people are you know, so eager to get their hands on, um, even though there might only be three or four bottles in the world. So it's, you know, you can talk about that. That's fascinating to me. Uh, what makes this bottle that was bottled in, you know, when my father was a child, what makes it so revered? Um, you know, that's that to me is is really interesting. The is there a big difference in quality from I guess more expensive brands of whiskey or? Yeah, I mean, there's look, there's a lot of hype, and there's a lot of uh, there's certain bottles that I think are probably overhyped. There's certain there's kind of a price bubble right now in bourbon. I think. Uh, where people are just paying a lot more money than they should for certain whiskeys. Uh, on the other hand, I think with Scotch, it's it's uh, it, the price the it's a it's it the price tracks quality pretty closely. I think so. You know, a thousand dollar bottle is going to taste. I mean, you can't you can never say this for sure, but I mean, I'd be willing to say a thousand dollar bottle is going to taste ten times better than a hundred dollar bottle, more or less. Uh, not not in every case, but you know it's closer with Scotch bourbon. I don't think that's true. There are a lot of thousand dollar bottles out there that are no better than a hundred dollar bottle. They just have a lot of hype around them. Uh, but Scotch definitely these days, you know, a, a bottle of uh, thirty year old, uh, which is about nine hundred thousand dollars, you taste it. It, it. That is just sublime. You skipped out. What was, the, what was the name? You skipped out for a second. What was that? Oh, sorry. It was uh, the ball the Balvenie. Uh, 
and uh, they make a 30 year old uh, bottle expression that is uh, just phenomenal and, and worth every penny. I've never bought it, but it's worth every, every penny. You've had a sip of it? You've had, I've had a sip. yeah, I've had a sip of it on a few occasions. It's, you've had $10,000 sips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's different than wine that all the aging takes place in the, in the barrel or in the casks, right? Yeah. Once you take it out, you know, it, over a long period of time, subtle changes will occur. But once it goes into a bottle, it really, and if you keep it out of the sunlight, if you keep it in pretty constant temperatures, uh, it's not really going to change. You know, the alcohol content is so high that it's just, you won't get a lot of variety. You certainly don't benefit from keeping it around. Uh, yeah. So in that regard, it's very much unlike wine. And it, once you move it, even, even put it in a, like a steel container, uh, it's, it's not going to age. Okay. Um, I'm into mixed martial arts. Is Conor McGregor's proper one any good or? You know, it's, um, I was really skeptical, uh, but it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's, uh, I, you know, I won't say it's one of my favorites, but um, I, I've, I've been uh, properly impressed with it. Okay. Uh, you know, just in terms of, there was a lot of hype around it. Um, celebrity whiskeys tend not to be very good. Um, there are a lot of them these days, a lot of celebrity whiskeys, uh, but I think his, his is pretty good. Uh, the Metallica whiskey is, uh, it's called Blackened. That's really good. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, that's one of the few celebrity whiskeys that I get, that I'll get behind. Um, and actually Peyton Manning, believe it, Peyton Manning has a whiskey uh, and uh, it is, it is really good. Uh, that that's stuff that that I would definitely recommend. Well, if there's one just to, just to bring the interview to a close, I want your whole reputation to ride on this. What's one affordable whiskey that we should go try that you really highly recommend? One of your one of your favorites. All right, one of my favorites. I will always stand by this. Uh, if you can find a whiskey called Old Granddad One Fourteen. And that means it's 114 proof or uh, uh, 57% alcohol. It's a really powerful whiskey, uh, but it is very affordable. It's about $30 for a bottle. And uh, it, for a long time, was sort of sailing under the, under the radar a little bit. Uh, but I think people are starting to... I've seen prices start to go up. And I'm, I'm a little worried that my old... My old, old granddad is going to start to disappear from the value shelf. It's going to start to migrate. Pretty soon, it's going to be behind the glass case. I've seen it happen with other whiskeys that I've loved and will no longer pay for on principle. So while you can, go get that old granddad 114. Okay. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll know if I should believe everything else after I have that, <laughs> that, that one set. There you go. There you go. <laughs> So well, I, will, I will let that ride. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed hey, speaking to you for the last hour. So, yeah, no, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Well, Always happy been, to talk. It's been Clay Risen. Uh, you can check out Clay Risen's books at clayrisen.com. C-L-A-Y-R-I-S-E-N.com. Um, and check out uh, his latest books on whiskey and American history. Um, 
Also, please check out dweebsglobal.org, where they offer free mentorships for people from mental health to resume writing. And it's completely free, and we have people around the world ready to help. So dweebsglobal.org.